which is at a regular hours, episode 138 for November 17th, 2020. I'm Steve Fodor. I'm Chip Hassenflow. And I'm Pam Bedour. And we are here on part three of our uh, wonderful conversation about The Time Traveler's Wife by Audrey Niffenager. And uh, let, let's just go with I'm a little excited this week, Pam and Chip. Well, I can imagine so, uh, this is the case because this is the third episode. And Pam, what does the third episode mean? The third episode means a guest, my friend. And I am so happy to introduce the author herself. Audrey Niffenegger is here to, to join us to talk about her book that makes me cry every time. Good morning, Audrey. Good morning, everyone. So I'm so excited. Everybody's going to have to keep me in, in, in my place today so that I don't just ask you the same question over and over again. Uh, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for this book. I, I have a lot of questions. <laughs> Good. So what inspired you to write this novel? The original idea came in the form of the title. I'm also a visual artist and I happen to be drawing at the time and I was sitting at my big drawing board which was covered in brown paper and I just got this phrase in my head the time traveler's wife and I thought oh that's kind of interesting wrote it down on the big piece of brown paper on the table and started thinking about it and it's a useful title because it gives you two characters their relationship and their situation so I started thinking well what would it be like to be married to a time traveler and how would it be, you know, if, if you yourself were not doing the time traveling, but just watching somebody bip in and out of your life? And uh, who are these people? And where do they live? And what do they do? And so the way that I write is I just start asking a lot of questions and each answer limits things, which is helpful because in order to function, you can't have a limitless, you know, the blank page is basically limitless. And so as soon as you start choosing it gets easier and easier to tell the story so you brought up the setting for this book and it just happens to be set mainly in chicago and boy you did a, a wonderful job just showing the world the way i feel about our lovely city of chicago it's kind of like a like a john hughes kind of love letter that you've written about the city of chicago here right yeah, I mean, I, I grew up in Evanston and have lived in Chicago since 1999. So I started writing the book in 97. And I, I remember thinking at the time that Chicago really is underused in fiction. I mean, there's, there's the wonderful classic Chicago books that we all know and love, but I, I sometimes feel like for a, a major arts city, it doesn't uh, get enough love in world literature. So it was exciting and felt kind of new uh, to be able to write about it. So as the only person here who's not from Chicago, though, I just want to say that I really felt like the city really came alive. And one thing that's been fun about this book club has also been reading Eric Larson's Devil in the White City. So it's been really fun for me to read two extremely different perspectives on Chicago, just a couple months apart. But but I do, I did really, really love yours. Now, let me ask, 
since time travel can go in so many different directions, and I love knowing that you started with the time traveler, how did you manage like the narrative form, deciding whether to make it more science fiction-y, fantasy, or I think what you've really done, postmodern literary? I mean, how did you decide how to make the time travel work? Because it's a very, a very unique approach that you take. I was starting with their marriage and the time travel was designed relative to the relationship between Henry and Claire. Mm -hmm. So I did not want him to be time traveling voluntarily because that would make him a jerk. Um, <laughs> that would mean Good he was point. <laughs> constantly just hopping in his way back machine and leaving and having little adventures without her. I was, formulating this in 1997 and uh, the search for the sequencing of the human genome was happening at the time. And I thought, well, if this was a genetic thing, it would mean that it was involuntary and also intrinsic to who he was. And that seemed interesting and important that it should be a trait or a flaw in him that was causing all this disruption. Uh, but also, it's one of the things that attracts her to him. Like a lot of bad boys, you know, there's, <laughs> there's the annoying thing that makes you love them and also makes it impossible to have it work. So I wanted it to be involuntary something that was there from the beginning with him. He didn't choose it. He wasn't bitten by a radioactive spider. It was just a, a genetic mutation. I didn't want to use a universe where the butterfly effect works. Um, I didn't want to have to deal with constantly splitting or changing time frames or universes. And so I adopted the rule that it's a block universe Everything that's happened has happened. You can't change it. You can't go back and, you know, make your parents meet each other. There's no grandfather paradox. Everything just happens once. And thinking about it after I'd made the decision, I realized that that's kind of the difference between comedy and tragedy. Comedy is back to the future where you inadvertently cause your parents to not get together and then spend the rest of the movie bungling around trying to repair that. Tragedy is where you know what's going to happen, you can't do a thing about it, and you see it coming, and you know, you're just kind of standing there being Cassandra. I love that. I love the decision that you made. And I do feel like I, I really I really I feel bad saying this. I really enjoy how much trauma is in this book. But the, <laughs> but you know what I mean? I but this comes to the the power of tragedy that you're just talking about. The Let me fact just note that. Let me just note that. I know, sorry, <laughs> right? Her cold, Thanks. cold heart loves oh. all the trauma. In fiction, but <laughs> so, <laughs> but but I do think that you know the way that you've chosen to set up the time travel really affords a lot of opportunities to think about how stress functions, how trauma functions you know, in, in everyone's lives. I mean, this is a very, this is a lit fic novel. It's a, it's a novel that people can really, really relate to, but also admire at the same time. Thank you. 
That was one of the questions that Pam asked us last week was, what is the metaphor that we're trying to cover here? And we came up with all sorts of things that maybe that's what Audrey was trying to write. Please don't answer. Please don't tell us what you had in your mind because we we own this story now. It's no longer yours. And, and we just love thinking about what could this mean? The trauma aspect, especially in this third section, the trauma of the miscarriage of of these children that happens over and over and over again is just heart-wrenching. Let me, let me come back to one of the, the, the statements you were making. The, I mean, there's a lot of philosophy that, that's part of this uh, story. And so one of the questions I have on how you constructed your universe is do humans have free will? I didn't want to try to provide a definitive answer to any of these questions that thousands of years of philosophy hasn't been able to answer because that would be uh well it just wouldn't work very well so what i hoped to do was to create a situation where the characters felt free as long as they didn't know what was coming also there's a section in the book where uh, Claire's driving and Henry is a passenger and it's dark out and she flips off her headlights and is driving on a dark road without headlights and he is flipping out. And she's like, why, you know, you know, you know that we're okay. And he's explaining to her that she, she knows that they're okay in the future but she doesn't know that they didn't spend a year in traction and have some major accident and kill people. And Part of what I was trying to get at was that even if you did know what was coming, you wouldn't know how it was arrived at and that that's just as important. Um, I'm dealing with that quite a lot. I'm writing a sequel to Time Traveler's Wife right now. Um, I've been working on it for eight years and one of the reasons it's taking forever is that I have to meld everything in the new book with everything that already happened in the old book and, and sort of weave everything together. And everything that happened in the old book has happened. Mm -hmm. And so I can't go fixing or undoing and nor would I want to. But yeah, the, the philosophical thorny issues, to me, the great thing is to get the reader to think about it and decide what they think about it rather than trying to hand them my ridiculous pop philosophy answer. But I love the line where Henry says that he has to act like he has free will or it just gets painful. The, that line between destiny and free will that you draw here is, is pretty perfect. It allows the reader to analyze these ideas without giving a definitive answer. But yet, you have no paradoxes. There is no paradox in here because you have that singular vision of the timeline. Yeah, being being paradox free was uh, very important to me. I didn't I didn't want to get years into writing the thing and then discover that I'd completely made a puzzle that couldn't work. That was uh, not something I was trying to get at. The complexities of time travel that does involve paradox, I always appreciate it when people tackle that. But for me, that's not really what I'm trying to address. So. I just set it to the side. I admire that because I don't know 
how one writes a time travel story without tripping over itself. And, and you did that very well here. This has been my first time reading this story. And I see that religion is also mentioned and considered as part of it. Henry is half Jewish. We have a, a Catholic mass um, that takes place during Christmas. And there's a, a mention of, I think it's Episcopalian, but anyway, it's sort of a Protestant element involved to it. Why is it important to show a variety of faiths in the story? In my life, uh, I have people from quite a few different faiths and I was raised Catholic and left the church when I was 15 and am now an atheist. And that's just for me. Uh, I don't, I, I think that, you know, I've arrived at an idea for me, but I don't try to extend that to anybody else. That's just my own little tiny solution to the conundrum. But I did feel like it was important to have characters who had faith, maybe they're losing faith or trying to figure out what's going on because Claire in particular, as a child, like myself, was raised Catholic and certainly believed in God and had faith. And for her, the difficulty of reconciling what's happening to Henry versus what she's learned in religion class is just impossible. She can't really get there. The book I'm writing, because it's about Alba, their daughter, is more dystopian. Um, I started it in 2012 and set out to write about climate change. And because it's taking so long, I've found myself including things like the pandemic and po political situation is, is playing into it. And um, the book ends in 2098. So I'm, I'm having to deal with some of the problems of future oriented time travel. Mm. Um, sometimes because the characters are older and even though they're traveling, she's traveling to the past, but it would still be our future. And so I'm having to extrapolate stuff that I, I'm just basically looking at the current situation and trying to work it forward in a reasonably accurate way. I'm sure 20 or 30 years from now, if people are still reading this book, they'll laugh at how much I got wrong, but hey-ho. It's important, I think, to try to make their world full of interesting people. And to me, that means including a lot of different sorts of people. And, and that brings us to the idea that you have of relationships. There's so many wonderful relationships in this book. The friendships, the, the dating scene, and then finally marriage, and, and the, boy, the, the coming together of those two families to find a way to find that middle ground. Why, why do you write such wonderful relationships and, and look at them from so many different sides in this book? Part of the point of the time travel was to achieve a kind of cubist portrait of a marriage because I, I realized early on that I could juxtapose Henry and Claire in lots of different age combinations. Some people find this a little problematic, you know, when she's 12 and he's 36, but I was trying to, I was trying to keep it as clean as possible. Sure. Um, but yeah, I was to me the the form of the novel is especially well suited to 
inventing and developing really interesting relationships between people because you can get inside people's heads and really know how they think and feel about each other. And so we, the readers, know a lot more about their relationship than either of them do. And, uh, and for me, that's, that's kind of the special thing. I mean, it's the thing that movies and film actually can't do. In fact, one of the things I found that you did incredibly well is these um, characters, they mature. And as they mature, they, they change on how they interact with each other. That's a beauty of, of, of the, the story as it's presented because Henry relates to the child as a child. But later on, they have um, a relationship. I mean, it's just a, sort of a, a different part. And how Henry deals with his parents or views his parents when he was younger versus how he's working with his dad later on. Yeah, I wrote, I wrote the book. Uh, it took almost five years. And I started it in, let's see, I started it when I was uh, 36, I think, and finished... I was 35 or 36 when I started it, and I think I was 40 when I finished. It's one of those books that I don't think I could have written or would have written quite differently in my 20s. Mm -hmm. For years, I was teaching in a grad program at Columbia College and had a class that was geared toward helping people write their first novels. And it's always been very interesting to me to see the sorts of novels people tackle early on versus what they can do later. And... I, I like doing something that you can bring different things at different points in your life. I mean, I'm glad I'm not a gymnast, you know, where your career is over when you're 14 or 15. Sure, sure. So how much of you is in this story? Are you a character in The Time Traveler's Wife? I think in order to make any character, you have to give them a little bit of yourself, uh, sort of like a sourdough starter. Uh, none of them is exactly like me, and my my personality is a bit more like Henry's than Claire's. I think people often imagine that I'm identical with Claire, which is not the case. We're both artists. I kind of gave her some of my more external qualities, characteristics like being an artist, being a Catholic, who later becomes not Catholic, being a woman, and... Henry, I gave more my temperament. He's a little bit more kamikaze mm -hmm. and a little bit more of a chaos monkey, which I can be also. But, you know, it, it wouldn't be true to say any of these characters are me, but all of them have a little bit of me. I used to tell people that uh, Ingrid was me and they would freak out, but it's <laughs> not, not really true. <laughs> so at least the punk music, is that from you? Is that, yeah. okay. I, right. I, I suspected as much because there's, there's this emphasis on, on their love of this one genre of music. And, and I assumed that that was coming from your perspective. Yeah. I mean, it's funny because there's a point at which, you know, Henry's musing, you know, how can the woman I love like the Eagles, you know, et cetera. <laughs> <laughs> but I like the Eagles just fine, you know. I didn't give her any tastes that I wouldn't cop to myself. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, in the scene where they meet the baby punks when they're uh, when they're traveling to meet Clara's family is great. Because I, I just I really enjoyed how 
you wove in the different musical tastes with this question of temporality that's so central. And I'm super excited to hear that there is a sequel. I presume The Time Traveler's Daughter, will that be the name of the sequel? No, uh, the working <laughs> title has been The Other Husband. Um, oh. Ooh. Ta -ta -ta. I, don't, I don't know that that'll be the final title because I think okay. the book's kind of outgrown it, actually. Mm. Um, there's an edition, a paperback edition of Time Traveler's Wife that has an excerpt from the new book in it. Oh, okay. Now we've just we've just read part three for for this week, and so this is where we actually meet Alba, who's so fascinating, and she seems to take time travel much more calmly than does her father. I love when she says. You know, it's sometimes a bit inconvenient, but mostly it's very interesting. And <laughs> <I'm>, <laughs> I love that. And I'm really intrigued that you're writing about climate change, which I think um, I just finished Amitav Ghosh's uh, The Great Derangement. I don't know if you've read that book, but in that he argues that we should, we need much more climate change within the genre of literary fiction, since so much has been ghettoized to sci-fi. We just, you know, it's, it's what we should all be writing and thinking about all the time, which I agree so I was kind of curious as I was rereading this, what does Alba with her calm sort of embrace of time travel and, you know, the fascinations that it provides, what can she tell us about the state of your time traveler world, but also about our world? I mean, I guess that's what you're writing this new novel for, but any, yeah. uh, any previews for us? Um, well, you know, from reading this book that, Alba has been handed over as a very small child to her grandfather, Richard, uh, to, be, to become a violin player. And uh, he does teach her and she does become very, very good. Uh, but she also, for reasons you will understand, has really severe stage fright. And so she's, she's never gonna be a, a professional performer uh, but she becomes a composer. Hmm. And uh, part of the book is about the relationship between being an artist of any sort and one's audience. Uh, because since she, she gets nervous, being nervous makes her disappear. She's obviously never going to stand in front of a big crowd and play. And so she has a relationship. It's not a spoiler actually for me to tell you that Alba's a bigamist. And she has two husbands, one of whom is also a time traveler. His name is Oliver. He's a pianist and he's her muse. Um, a lot of the music she writes is either for him as a solo performer or for the two of them as duets. And she has a husband who doesn't time travel his name is Zach. So her kind of pinging around in her own life, some of what she's dealing with has to do with the relationship between what you make and who you're making it for. For example, if you make a piece of music, but you'll never know whether anybody hears or not, you know, what does that do to you as a, as a writer of music? What if your audience is only one person? So, there's a, there's a lot of different stuff going on. I mean, Claire is in this new book. A lot of the characters from the previous book have carried over. Uh, Gomez and Charisse and their children are in it. 
everybody's mostly a good deal older than they were in the previous book because uh, Alba was born six days before 9-11. And so uh, in order to deal with her as a character at all, I had to move into the future a bit. Interesting. Okay. I'm thinking of the, the what was this? Is it the Scandinavian um, country that, that um, they have the time capsule for a hundred years in the future? Oh, yeah. Uh, Atwood just wrote a book. Yeah, the Future Art Project in Norway. That's right. Atwood in 2014 wrote Scribbler Moon, which will be opened in 2114. So, and which so, I'll never get to read, which makes me crazy because I read everything Atwood writes and that's not okay. But yeah, I like the idea of secret art. Yeah. Someone, uh, when I was a graduate student at Northwestern, we had a visiting artist, I'm pretty sure it was David Clayman, who was talking about every third painting, just putting it under the bed. Um, <laughs> I, I hope I'm I hope I'm attributing that right. I hope this really was David Clayman and I'm not uh, putting words in his mouth. But I like the idea of occasionally making something that other people won't see. Because each thing you make kind of moves your thinking in some direction. And a lot of people keep sketchbooks and journals and so forth. And I think the purpose of those is to move you along. And then the thing that you make for an audience, sometimes I think it seems to people as though it emerges out of nowhere, but the process is just not available to people. And so that's part of what I'm writing about, this business of, uh, of making things without necessarily putting them in front of people. So let's move this a, a little bit further with uh, th this being November of 2020. Currently, right now, every November, the, the NaMoWriMo writing exercise takes place, basically, where people from all over the world go out and they're asked to write a, a certain amount every single day. And at the end of the, the uh, month, they have this body of work. As a teacher who has worked with, with students with creative writing, what are some important lessons writers can learn to, to grow and expand their skills? Years ago, NaNoWriMo actually asked me to write one of their pep talks. If you've gone to their website, they have a lovely section of pep talks to try to help people keep going because to, to maintain that kind of breakneck pace over the course of even a month is very difficult. And my pep talk was originally meant to be posted on their site at the very end of the month. I think I might even have been December 1st, I can't remember. Uh, and it was an exhortation to people now that they had done this sprint of writing so much every day, every day, every day, to slow down, to go for a walk, to relax, to reread their work, to put it aside, to come back to it and edit more slowly. So it was, it was kind of meant to be a kind of antithesis to every other thing that people had exhorted them, you know, as, as the month went along. As you might guess, I'm a very slow writer. I don't get a lot done every day. I do try to work every day, but I don't manage it. I, I'm a big believer in working all over a thing, and I tend to work on big things. I've written short stories, but not very many. And 
um, you know, I've, I've got short stories where I wrote part of it and then put it aside for a year because I couldn't figure out how to go forward and then came back again and was able to finish the thing. So I'm a big believer in putting it down, letting it percolate, letting yourself have the time to address the idea in an interesting way. I admire people who write quickly and produce lots of books because as a reader, I want the authors I write to have lots of books for me to read. So I salute that. Unfortunately, I'm not that girl, but uh, Susanna Clark recently published a book, Piranesi, that I had waited for for a very long time. And I was just in ecstasy. I think I read it in one day, <laughs> but I'm looking forward to rereading it, you know, when I'm not feeling so anxious to just gobble it up. Don't you hate that when you're expecting a book for so long and then it comes out and then you devour it in a day and it's just, it's gone. All of that anticipation. I do that so often where I anticipate this, this work for so long, hearing that an author is working on something like a sequel to the time traveler's wife, for instance. <laughs> and, and I, I know that I'll buy it the day it comes out and I know that I'll, I'll get through it in a, a just far too fast to enjoy it well, <laughs> and then you'll read it six more times so you'll... And, and, and it'll make me cry every time just like this book yes all right yeah. <laughs> i mean i i do that too you know i i'm a big fan of donna tard i love marilyn robinson who you know wrote housekeeping and then was quiet for a long time as far as fiction went so i feel the reader's pain you know that pain of waiting for something to come along or, or also, you know, people who haven't produced very many books. There's, there's writers I love who have died, who I know that's it. You know, that's all we're going to get. Catherine Dunn, for example. So I get that. On the other hand, I think one of the reasons it takes me so long to write things, my second book, Her Fearful Symmetry, took a long time because I had to do the research. It's set in Highgate Cemetery in London and... At the time, you couldn't just look it all up on Wikipedia. You had to actually go there and participate. So sometimes it's that, but sometimes in the case of the sequel, it's it takes a while to get enough quiet to do it. I was really fortunate because the level of interaction and interest from readers was really high with Time Traveler's Wife. And for years, I was asked to go places and talk to people, and I got a ton of email from people. And that was wonderful, and I really appreciated it. It, it made it feel very much worth all the effort that I had put into writing it. But it also made it hard to think about the sequel without that little voice going, oh, they're not going to like that. Oh, you shouldn't do that. Oh, no. Oh, that's really going to bother people if you do that. I mean, I have to kind of be free to mess with the characters because if everything is unicorns and rainbows, then we don't have a plot. <laughs> I mean, at the moment, I think I've got about 500 pages pages in the manuscript, so it's I haven't been slacking or anything. It's just sometimes certain things just take longer to do. So what I got from that is... Traveling can be business, mm -hmm. as in the sense that you know you, you, Wikipedia can't answer all the questions. So you've got to go see the uh, the cemetery in person uh, mm -hmm. sometimes. 
And then this the idea of you still need to sort of buy time to separate yourself from the everyday to give your creative juices kind of the opportunity to to grow and to, to place your stuff on, on the page. Because if you're so busy researching, you're never giving yourself that opportunity. Hmm. Um, yeah. I used to go to artists' residencies quite a lot. Uh, starting in 1996, I still do occasionally, less less often now, obviously, and well, not at all now. We none of us go anywhere now. But right. I went to Ragdale uh, over and over again. Ragdale's just—it's about an hour's drive from where I live in Lake Forest uh, near Chicago. And Ragdale had a big influence on the Time Traveler's Wife because it's an arts and crafts house. It sits on a prairie. The prairie is edged by trees. And so that turned into Claire's family home, Meadowlark. I didn't start writing the book at, at Ragdale, but I was there very early on. And it was really formative in terms of uh, the place where Claire grows up. And I do have a tendency to put real places in the books. And so people who are familiar with Ragdale would recognize it easily. All right. So now it's time to have a lot of fun because... Uh, one of the hosts of, of this uh, podcast seems to enjoy a certain um, show that has uh, aired for many, many years. And so he, we need to go ahead and get these these questions out there. All so, right. You, you want to help us out? So, Audrey, I know that you didn't watch a lot of television until Eddie came into your life. But are you familiar <laughs> with a, a particular time traveling adventure called Doctor Who? Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, I actually got into Doctor Who before I ever met Eddie because uh, a kind stranger emailed me to say, gosh, what do you think about this episode of Doctor Who that's based on your book? And I thought, what? <laughs> <laughs> and of course, this person meant uh, The Girl in the Fireplace, mm -hmm. which was written by Stephen Moffat. And, you know, I, I tuned in thinking, you know, hey, what? And I loved it. I loved it, loved it, loved it. It was wonderful. And that got me started watching the new incarnation of Doctor Who. So, you know, I had seen Doctor Who when I was a kid because I grew up in Chicago where our local um, PBS station airs a lot of Brit TV. So, Really? Um, I, I didn't know that uh, our local <laughs> PBS station influenced my childhood as much as it, as it did. Um, you yeah, have curly hair in a, a, a long uh, scarf, right, Steve? Yes. So, and then Neil Gaiman wrote the episode called The, the Doctor's Wife. Mm -hmm. And I, I've heard that you've had a conversation with Neil Gaiman in the past. Is that correct? Uh, Neil and I are friends, yeah. Neil has been friends with Eddie Campbell, my husband, for years and years and years and years. So uh, they know each other very, very well. I came along later, but I, I actually met my husband because I met Neil. Interesting. Um, I, was, I was at a um, literary festival in Sydney, Australia, and I was at one of those uh, parties that they have on the opening night of the festival, and having come from Chicago and being very jet lagged and I didn't know anybody. So I was just standing there clutching my drink and wondering how soon I could get out of there. And uh, Neil came up and introduced himself because he was going to interview me on stage the next day. 
and because Neil is a lovely, kind person with excellent manners. And he had this young woman with him who turned out to be Haley Campbell, Eddie's daughter. And so because Neil knew everybody in the room, he he sort of said, oh, well, you know, lovely to talk to you, talk to you tomorrow and went sailing away. And so Haley and I were standing there and we started chatting and she was 19 at the time and she was just about to move to London. And so I said, oh yeah, well, you know, I'm there all the time. Here's my email address. And she did that wonderful thing where she actually got in touch and we became friends and fast forward six years and she introduced me to, to her dad, which is how we met. That's an awesome story. Wow. That really is, fun. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. That is so, a uh, destiny kind of relationship right oh. there. So yeah, my heart, um, my heart grew three times that day. <laughs> <laughs> That's beautiful. Yeah, I mean the number of coincidences that have to happen. I mean, like I have, it has to start with me writing a book, and then you know, et cetera, et cetera, and ending up in Sydney, Australia, where Neil also has to be because he doesn't live there either, and Haley didn't live in Sydney either. She, they, they all lived in Brisbane. So I'm gonna start everybody, everybody had to converge. Story now. Yeah. <laughs> All right, so since you are aware of Doctor Who, I have to ask you about the, the Doctor's actual wife, River Song, and how their story is very similar to the Time Traveler's wife in that they are going into time in opposite directions. How do you, how do you feel about uh, that, that piece of uh, literary thievery? <laughs> oh. Well, Stephen acknowledges that both um, Girl in a Fireplace and the River Song character and plotline are heavily influenced by Time Traveler's Wife. But, you know, that's cool because I like Stephen and I admire his work. And also because he's going to write and direct and make happen. Um, I'm not sure if he's directing, but anyway, he's he's the... Um, showrunner. The grandee, the showrunner of an HBO series based on Time Traveler's Wife. How's that going? I don't know. <laughs> okay. Because you're executive I, producing, but you, you're uh, you're no, doing no, a hands-off? I'm, I'm not an executive producer. I'm a consultant. Oh. Um, so I hesitate to bug Stephen. You know, I know that I myself don't enjoy being uh, poked. So I know that he was he was going to spend last year writing it. So I'm sort of hoping that it all got written according to schedule. When we were last talking about it, they were just about to start shooting Dracula, which okay. came out and was wonderful. And so uh, I'm not sure where they are with things, but of course it's impossible to do a shoot right now mm -hmm. without taking all sorts of extraordinary precautions. And it's they're not shooting at the moment. So I don't really have news in that regard, but he's such a wonderful person to talk to and I feel really excited and, and confident about it. We do too since we are big fans of the Sherlock series yeah. again since we read every word of Sherlock Holmes during COVID and, and one of the discussions that we had many times was that BBC adaptation where Stephen Moffat is just an amazing writer showrunner to put together these ideas i i really look forward to that program yes it was really interesting to watch sherlock because i know the stories very well and there were 
a lot of places where they took liberties and it was thrilling. And so I'm trying to I'm trying to internalize that feeling of the thrilling liberties because I know he's gonna do the same with us. <laughs> <laughs> I want to thank you so much for for agreeing to to have a conversation with us today. If our listeners wanted to find out more about the projects you're working on in, in your other work, where could they find you? Well, I have a website, audreynifenegger.com. Mm-hmm. Um, it's got a bunch of my art as well as my assistant, Ken Gerleve, did a wonderful long interview with me where we tried to answer all the frequently asked questions. And so if you go on the website, we, we tried to put as much of that as we could on various parts of the website. Um, I get a fair amount of email from uh, high school students who kind of want me to do their homework for them. <laughs> and so the website interview isn't so that I can do their homework for them, but it's to answer some of the questions that they sometimes ask that don't involve critical thinking. <laughs> I wonder why I emailed her. Um, no. <laughs> it's... Uh, Amazing. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for giving us this story that I've read far too many times. Uh, we, we went to the Newberry Library last weekend just to hang out at the library, which is so central to your setting of your book. And we, we weren't allowed to see the stairwell with the cage, but that was introduced in this section of the book that we read this week. And, and uh, the foreshadowing of what's going to happen in the fourth section is is so masterfully done. Uh, Thank you so much for that. Thank you. Yeah, the Newberry is a little bemused by the fact that I've made this entirely boring staircase into part of their tourism infrastructure. (laughs) (laughs) The the lady in the bookshop was was really trying to downplay how boring this staircase is. Super boring. She'll never convince Steve of that. No never. Way. Never. <laughs> Every never. once in a while, they'll do a, a little tour where they let people go in. <laughs> but they couldn't have people lurking in there all the time because they themselves use it every day and it's not secure. <laughs> anyway. But that's Those... the power of literature. I mean, that right there, right? So taking a real place and making us see it in a completely fanciful but kind of wonderful way. I mean, that's why we read. And so so as someone who's reading this book for the second time and who teaches all manner of speculative fiction um, at the University of Connecticut, I also want to thank you with a lot of enthusiasm. I could never match Steve's, but with a lot of enthusiasm for, for offering us this really, really thoughtful book and for having another one in the pipeline there. And she said the word dystopia in it too, Pam. Oh, I, oh, I heard that. I heard I climate change. I heard dystopia. I heard temporality and trauma still working through their way through. I am super excited. Chip is too. I am very excited. <laughs> this is my first time reading it. I have enjoyed it. In fact, there hasn't been a book that we, or a story or a book that we've read as part of our, uh, our studies that hasn't been enjoyable. And there's the beauty of it is that it doesn't even have to be my genre. It's just like, oh, this is, a, this is, this is nice. It's interesting. And, and I'm glad to go on those journeys. 
and to meet Audrey and to have this conversation. And we talked to Eddie two months ago when we were reading uh, From Hell, his illustrations of that Jack the Ripper story, uh, meeting people from uh, uh, basically Chicago. Uh, But that's okay. (laughs) (laughs) Meeting people has been wonderful as well. One day I'll be even considered literate. So that'll be a real... We're working on you, Chip. We're working on you. (laughs) Well, it was Thank- lovely to meet all of you, and thanks for uh, thanks for doing this. Thanks for just uh, getting so involved with the book. It's nice to see enthusiasm, and you know, I'm I'm glad that you're reading it for the first time, Chip. That's cool. And just I love I love all your different approaches. It's really lovely to see. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks. All right, I will go smile somewhere else for a very, very long time after talking to Audrey Niffenager about The Time Traveler's Wife. Uh, boy, we, did, we haven't talked about the book at all this week, have we? <laughs> That's okay. We, we got so much from that interview. I was just, that was an amazing interview. And I feel super confident we're finishing the book next week. And so we can, we can wrap week part three and four into our into our final episode on this book and we want to thank all the people who are reading along with us and have had input on what we're asking and our interactions with the with the author and uh, we look forward to to doing in the future all right chip do you think we have enough information to survive another week only if we can come back next week what do you think pam i'm in back next week for parts three and four of the time traveler's wife excellent I I'm I'm beside myself. I'm overjoyed. I'm baby. Uh, uh, startled baby. Startled baby. I, I'm so I'm so happy that this exists. That this is going to be out there. I am so happy that everybody's joining us and reading along with us and enjoying this book as much as I am. We would love to hear from you. Give us a call or a text. Our phone number is eight zero five four one zero four eight six seven. Our website is sandwiches at regularhours.com. Our email is sandwiches at regularhours at gmail.com. We're on Twitter and Instagram and Facebook. We're on Apple Podcasts and Spotify and YouTube. And you can find us everywhere. I'll I'll be on the clouds. Uh, I'll just walking around <laughs> smiling. I want to thank you again for listening to Sandwiches at Regular Hours. I'm Steve Foder. I'm Chip Hassenflo. And I'm Pam Bedore. See you in the future. And the past. And the future. And the present. And stay, stay in the present for a while. Let me marry someone. <laughs>